Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Good morning and welcome to NeuroRounds. This is round 12. We'll be talking about association cortices, higher functional localization, and hemispheric asymmetries. So a lot to get to today. Um, We're going to be talking about uh, function localization. Then we, of course, need to talk about phrenology. So this was a practice in the 1800s. Um, Franz Gall was a big proponent of this. And we've all seen these phrenology heads where they have different um, abilities in different places on the skull. Um, He kind of started out with a good idea. Basically, he thought that, first of all, the brain is where the mind is as opposed to where the heart. Um, He thought that the brain is not one thing, but a lot of different things. And that the relative size of the different organs uh, indicated its strength. So this kind of made sense. If you do a lot of weightlifting, you have big muscles and you're very strong. So why wouldn't that also work with your mental organs? And then he figured that since the skull also fives over the brain during infancy, then the size of the brain would affect, or the brain regions would affect that part of the skull. And so if you had a really big bulge, then that organ was very powerful. And so that would be a dominant feature of your personality or person. Um, you can see over here, you had things like color right here by the eye. Um, and then they had you know, friendship back here in the occipital region. Um, very funny things, you know, they had these shapes of the head that could determine whether you'd be a good mother or a poor mother, uh, a good husband or a bad husband, just based on the shape of your head. Um, obviously, we know that that's, that kind of fell out of fashion uh, in the later, in the mid to later 1800s. Uh, but it was a good try. Um, what we know now, you've seen this slide before, is that there are some regions that are important for specific functions. So you have V1, bacterial occipital lobe. As we discussed, when we did our vision um, lecture. Uh, we know that's where you have process very elemental regions of vision sensory information. You have M1 and S1, and also the auditory primary cortices. And those are very specifically for those modalities. You also have the secondary association cortex, where you start elaborating on the very basic um, information, our motor commands. And then as you uh, go on, you have this hierarchical processing where you get to the peach areas, which are heteromodal areas. And that's what we'll be focusing on today. So just wanted to remind you with an example of vision. So you see something, it comes in, it goes back to V1, and you can process that as a spherical white object. It goes up to the wear stream, the dorsal stream, and you're like, hey, it's moving at me pretty fast. And then the what stream, you're like, hey, that's a baseball. You go one step further, it's how do you feel about baseball? Do you remember times when you and your dad went to the baseball field and, or threw a baseball back and forth, or did you get hit in the head and you're afraid of it? So again, the heteromotor regions, they're in the peach regions here. Um, these are regions that they don't just respond to one sensory modality, they respond to lots of different modalities. 
Um, if you have a lesion in one of these areas, it's not just one thing that's messed up, it's a lot of different things. Um, they frequently respond to both sensory and motor inputs. Um, and then also the firing of these neurons in these areas it changes based on your motivational um, status. Also related to this are transmodal regions. And this is uh, regions where it's kind of a gateway, so it doesn't have the information, but it sends the uh, information to where it needs to go to process it further. So it's what changes sensory information to cognition. So there's information out there, but it brings meaning to it. And these are the pathways that help you bring meaning to um, stimuli. So we'll talk first about the temporal heteromodal cortex. Um, so whenever, whenever you see a face, an unfamiliar face, we talked about this before, it activates the fusiform gyrus, so the, um, fusiform face area. And so it's kind of back in the medial a little bit. But whenever you see a familiar face, it also activates the lateral mid-temporal cortex here. And so what we think this region does is that it helps link the representation of a face to associations. So there's Eric's beautiful face, I know his voice, I have memories of him, and then altogether that holistically gives you a recognition of who that person is. There are some interesting um, disorders of these regions. One is associative, associative propus agnosia, and this is usually when you have damage to the lingual and fusiform gyrus. And so in this uh, disorder, you can recognize whether two faces are the same or not. Uh, but you can't recognize a specific face. Um, that face can still elicit an emotional reaction. So if it's someone that you don't like, you can still get that feeling. If it's someone you do like, you still get happy, but you still don't know who that person is per se. Uh, but if you have a um, auditory stimulus of their voice, you're like, hey, yes, who that is, but just the face alone will not lead to recognition. Some people with this might have trouble recognizing specific members of a group. So you can recognize that a dog is a dog, but not that that's your dog. Um, or a particular car, so you say that is a car, but I don't know that it's a Honda Civic that belongs to so-and-so. You also have associative visual object agnosia, which takes us a step further. So in this one, you can recognize categories of objects uh, in a propus of agnosia, but in a visual object agnosia, you can't even recognize the category. So you see a thing and you can't, I don't know what that is or what it does. Um, you can see a car, but you can't say that it transports people. Uh, but you can't say whether that car is the same as that car. Again, but you can't have a category meaning with it. So interesting things about these is that there are hemispheric differences. We'll get into hemispheric differences a little bit later, but I uh, just want to mention it right here. Uh, the propus agnosia you'll usually get when there is a right hemisphere lesion. Um, the object agnosia is more left hemisphere. Um, so this kind of uh, indicates that the right hemisphere has a role in autobiographical memories. There are other associative agnosias, um, auditory, object, auditory object agnosia, which you can't match a sound to the object. So you'll hear a ring, but you can't say that's from a telephone, um, or a siren, you can't say that comes from an ambulance. Uh, there's also phonics agnosia, where you can't identify familiar voices. Um, for all these things, the, the regions of the brain that process the kind of elemental, you can hear the ring, or you can hear the siren, you can see the face, those things are all intact, but it's the, um, the higher level recognition that is the problem. So these regions aren't where the knowledge is, but it helps you get to where the knowledge is. 
Okay. Another region is the temporoparietal transmodal region, um, kind of Wernicke's area specifically. So language is a very complicated task um, where it allows you to elaborate, communicate experiences and thoughts, and it all uses kind of these arbitrary symbols. So these sounds that come out of your mouth, and then there's these figures, so it could be um, speech or it can be text. And these are all arbitrary that we kind of assign meaning to. Um, and so those meanings are then tied to concepts and constructs. So that is a very complicated task of speech. We know the Wernicke's area and Broca's area are two anchors of a language network. Um, Wernicke's area is a transmodal gateway uh, that co coordinates the connections so it ties the representations of words to their meanings. It doesn't have the meanings, but it's the connection between them. Um, so the damage to Wernicke's area doesn't affect the word, the word representations per se, uh, but it's how you get to it. And so uh, people with Wernicke's aphasia, as you know, they cannot comprehend language, nor can they produce language. This is kind of the word salad, where they're just saying a bunch of words, but it doesn't mean anything. Um, it's also pure alexia, which is word blindness. And this occurs when the areas that encode the visual word forms um, cannot connect to Wernicke's area to get meaning. Um, usually there is a lesion in the uh, splenium, splenium here of the corpus callosum, and then that um, interferes with transfer of the visual processing area in the right hemisphere with the word form area in the left hemisphere. Um, so again, the problem is in linking the raw sensory information with the knowledge that's related to it. Okay, um, now we're gonna move on to the posterior parietal um, area. It's all back in this region here. Um, it has a role in spatial attention, uh, specifically on the right side. I can talk to hemispheric differences later. Um, so its uh, main purpose here is in spatial attention. So it integrates a bunch of spatial information about what's out there. Um, so when you have damage to it, it's damage to relating to extra personal space. So how you relate to objects out there. Um, so what happens is you have the information, but you can't relate it to yourself again. So you know that it's right there, but you can't orient your body to go get it. Um, people who have uh, damage in this region um, have difficulty with mental rotation and identifying objects when they're in a weird uh, perspective. Um, also, there's balance syndrome, which is a breakdown of visuospatial integration. And so you can move your eyes around, but you can't specifically try to voluntarily move it to a region in space. Um, you can't use visual guidance to grasp objects um, or kind of focusing your visual attention. You also have ideomotor apraxia, uh, which is damage to the inferior parietal lobe. Um, so this is where you can't pantomime the use of an object. So if I, give, if I say, what do you do with scissors? You don't know how to do this with it. Also, there's Gerstmann syndrome, which is where you have left-right confusion, which I have all the time anyway. <laughs> um, also, there's finger agnosia. So you say, what finger is this or this? And you can't say it's the ring finger. Um, there's also some problems with dysgraphia and dyscalculia. It's also where you kind of have to move symbols around in spatial where they are spatially matters. Um, it also has a role in uh, mood and motivation. Um, so again, on the right side, so if you have a lesion on the right side, you might have the psychotic or affective behaviors. 
Um, even people with Wernicke's aphasia can have some severe mood alterations. So you'll be really angry one moment, then paranoid, then indifferent. Um, and so this might be related to the damages of the sensory limbic interactions. Okay, so now the prefrontal area um, right here in front, uh, Broadwind's area 9, 10, 11, 12, 45, so all of this region here. Um, so this kind of generally helps you to attend uh, to the internal space. So the parietal is external space, prefrontal is internal. So what's going on inside your own head. It also helps you to weigh the consequences of future actions. Um, so it's related to the motor areas. So it helps you decide what to do by weighing the consequences of uh, different possible actions. Um, it has two kind of functional centers. One is kind of working memory, executive function, attention. Another one is comportment or your behavior. So we see a lot of these different uh, manifestations in frontal lobe syndrome. So I'm going to list a couple different ways that can be manifested here. So if you have frontal lobe syndrome, you could be childish, profane, careless, grandiose, and easily angered. Or you could lose spontaneity, curiosity, initiative. You're kind of generally apathetic. Um, you have no drive or motivation. You could lack foresight, judgment, insights, um, and the ability to delay gratification. Um, you could lose the capacity for remorse. Um, it also affects your abstract reasoning, creativity, problem solving, and mental flexibility. Um, and you could lose the ability to plan and sequence complex behaviors, uh, decision making, um, kind of you know, weigh different kind of risk factors, uh, flex your, uh, flexibly shift your attention, and follow multi-step instructions. So there's a whole range of mani uh, manifestations that can happen if the frontal lobes are affected. Um, and of course, you can't talk about the frontal lobe without talking about Mr. Gage, who is my favorite. Um, so if you're not aware of Phineas Gage, um, on September 13th, 1848, uh, he was a railroad foreman. And so they would have to go and uh, blow up rocks and stuff to lay the railroad. And so he had this tamping iron that he made specifically for himself. And he would tamp down TNT or whatever, and then it would blow up. But in this occasion, um, it blew the rod straight up through his brain. You can see where it went in these images down here. Um, luckily for him, it was tapered on one end, and the tapered end is what went up through his draw. Um, that helps minimize the damage, but there still was a lot of damage. Um, so at the time of the accident, um, there were some convulsions and seizures, but within 30 minutes, he was sitting up and talking, even making jokes with the doctor. When he was talking to the doctor, he just uh, got up and threw up, and then a whole bunch of brain came out of his head, and he kept on talking. So that's kind of crazy. Um, but then, um, as he kind of recovered after that, for a month or so, he was in and out of a coma. Uh, but then after that, he kind of physically recovered. And he was able to do uh, actually complicated things, like he ran a stable, and then he was doing long-distance stagecoach driving in Chile which requires a lot of different um, tasks. So in order to do that, he had to exchange fares. He had to harness up the horses. He had to make plans of the route to go. Um, he had to deal with, you know, possibly violent people or whatever was happening in Chile in the 1850s. Um, so what they think is that even though right prior to the accident, he was very smart, likable, a very shrewd businessman, 
Immediately after the accident, he was very fitful, irreverent, profane, and impatient, um, very impulsive. But what they think is that at, very, like years later, his brain was able to kind of rewire itself and was able to kind of get back some of the um, abilities that it lost initially. Unfortunately, though, um, after all this and the, very, the struggles of being in Chile, um, you know, he was kind of exposed to everything. Um, he had a lot of seizures and got epilepsy and died in his 30s. But it's, of course, a very famous case of what can happen when you affect these frontal regions. Um, and then when people frequently talk about what happened immediately afterwards, but what they don't talk about is a little bit later, he did seem to recover some of these um, abilities. So, moving on to monkey studies of the prefrontal region. There, in the monkey brain, there's a principal sulcus here in the front, and they think that its function is for uh, planning um, motor actions and cognitive tasks requiring spatial information. So, when you have a lesion to this area, it impairs your ability to do delayed responses. So, the task here is that they showed a monkey a treat, and they put it in a cup either to the left or to the right, and they made him wait a few seconds. And then the monkey is supposed to go get the treat from the cup. But if they lesion this area, then the monkey is not able to figure out which cup it had been. So what they found from cellular studies is that there are some neurons that fire when a cue is presented and throughout the delay. Um, and then there are specific uh, neurons for, for specific regions in space in this area. So it has a bit of a map so it knows where the spatial location is for stimuli. So again, this is a, kind of a working memory task that is affected in this region of the monkey. So again, working memory is part of the prefrontal area. Um, there's also, a, in the monkey, inferior prefrontal co convexivity. Um, so this helps you, the monkey to choose from a different uh, possible motor actions. So this task is, if you hear a sound from above, you go to the left. If you hear a sound from below, you go to the right. Again, this is uh, having to deal with spatial information and then selecting one option from a range of possible options, all done in the prefrontal cortex. Okay, orbitofrontal cortex and the cingulate gyrus. So this region is the orbitofrontal and cingulate gyrus here. This has to do with kind of a limbic area. And so when you lesion this area in monkeys, um, they don't exhibit the rage. So um, I talked to you at one of the frequent, uh, I mean, in the recent um, rounds about how the monkey was, you know, he didn't get the treat that he, his friend got the grape and he only got a cucumber and he got really angry. But if you lesion this area, he won't get angry. It's kind of a blunting of autonomic responses. So the blood pressure doesn't rise. He just kind of chilling. doesn't really matter. So in the 1930s, they noted that there's this kind of calming effect when you affect these regions of the brain. And so then a Portuguese neurologist decided to uh, take that a step further and suggest this as treatment um, for the severe mental illness, schizophrenia. Um, and so this is where the lobotomy came from. And at first they had kind of positive results. Of course, later they found that there was not quite positive results. There's epilepsy, personality changes. Um, but just some examples of some positive results from the time um, this boy here um, was schizophrenic and um, they said he had to be caged in the basement. But after his lobotomy, he was, looks happy and apparently no longer being caged. 
This lady over here also had schizophrenia. The uh, note here says, in some instances, the best that can be done for the family is to return the patient to them as an innocuous state, a household pet. So uh, while they saw this as a win, obviously there's some personality blunting that happens. Um, you know, if you're no longer a person, you're just a pet, that's, I guess, better than being, you know, violent, but it's still not um, living your best life, if you will. Um, one of the interesting things they found was that at the time, the conventional test of general intelligence showed little effect. And they were very confused by this because they thought the frontal lobe was where intelligence is. But what they found as they did more and more experiments is that there are some specific tasks that are affected. So in general, as you found from Mr. Gage, you can recover kind of general functioning, um, but there are some tasks that will be affected. Um, so for example, the, there are deficits in the Wisconsin card sorting tasks. So if you're not familiar with this, you have cards with different shapes, different number of items, different colored items. And then there's um, a rule where you have to uh, pair things. So if you see this card with three red circles, you have to decide, is it red? Is that what you're kind of uh, pairing it with? Is it that there's three items? Is it that it's circles? And so every time you get it right, then the rules change. You have to figure out what the new rule is. Um, but people with lobotomy would perseverate. And so once they found one rule that worked, they would keep on going with that and they wouldn't change. So they're not very flexible. Um, they also had trouble with verbal naming from memory and then they were not very spontaneous in their behavior. So again, perseveration. Okay, so now on to hemispheric asymmetries. There are some interesting size differences of regions of the brain. And these size differences are even present in human fetuses. Uh, there is one region here, the planium temporal. It's in a region that includes the Wernicke's area. And they did a study of 100 brains and found that 65% were larger on the left side, um, where 11 were larger on the right side, and 24 were approximately equal. So this larger on the left side is um, suggestive of a language preference for left side. Um, they also did sodium amytal tests, and this is what neurosurgeons do to, to determine what side of the brain is dominant for language. So this is a barbiturate that is injected into one of their carotid arteries, and they have the patient speaking or talking, and then whenever it starts working and you hit the right side, they'll just stop talking or counting, and they don't respond to commands. And what they found is that um, all right-handed people, at least in this study, had left hemispheric speech. Uh, most left-handed people also had left hemispheric speech, um, but 15% had right hemisphere speech, and then some even had it in both hemispheres. And um, they also found some effects on mood from these tests. Um, if you checked it on the left side, it would produce depression. On the right side, it produced your euphoria. Um, they also found some differences on these T-scope experiments. So if you're not uh, familiar with these, this is back in the day how they would be able to show you a specific stimuli for specific amounts of time. You can do one visual field versus the other visual field kind of before computers were easily accessible. And what they found, so they had two tasks. One was visuospatial, visual so you had to recognize a face. The other was verbal, recognize a word. What they found for right-handed subjects is that the verbal task did better when presented on the right side, so then the left side of the brain was working on it. 
And for spatial tasks, you did better when the stimuli was presented on the left because the right side of the brain was working on it. Um, this also works for different modalities like um, audition. So there's a dichotic um, experiments where they had you listening to two different auditory stimuli in the ears at the same time. And they found that for right-handed subjects again, the right ear is better for verbal material because the left hemisphere was processing it. And the left ear was better for nonverbal, so music recognition. So again, language tends to be on the left. Other things, uh, like spatial uh, things, are on the right. They also did some experiments on split-brain patients. So this is where you sever the corpus callosum, and that is the, uh, the main region where there's connections between the two hemispheres. And you do this when there is uh, seizures, and you don't want the seizure to spread from one hemisphere to the other hemisphere. Um, what they found is that both hemispheres are capable of functioning independently, um, but the right side is generally mute. It cannot communicate what it sees verbally. Um, and it also has limited ability to perform tasks that require reasoning or analysis. So if it's a really complicated question or task that you're working on, a lot of times you talk to yourself in your head to work out the problem, um, but you can't do that with the right side because it doesn't have any language. And so if you don't have that language to talk to yourself in your head, um, then you have problems with those problems. What they found is that in everyday life, patients tend to function fairly well. And that's because you're getting information from your um, environment to both eyes. But in the, um, in the laboratory, when you can restrict what you see on each side, you found that the right visual field, the patient can name a stimulus. So if you present something to the right side, you can say, oh, that's an apple. But if you present to the left side, you can't say it's an apple because you don't have language. But if you show a range of pictures, like what was that thing, you could pick out the right thing. Okay, so we know that the left hemisphere is all about language. What is the right hemisphere doing? It's doing actually a lot. So it does a lot of complex, non-linguistic perceptual tasks like face and object identification. Um, it's really important for spatial information, um, emotion and affect, also paralinguistic aspects of communications. Like I said, the left hemisphere is for uh, phoneme production, word choice, but the right hemisphere is for emotional prosody. So you can say a thing, but the way that you say it is really important. So you can tell if you're joking, or if you're, you know, if you're really angry, or if you're happy. Um, that's in the tone of what you're saying. Um, so if you don't have that, then that could cause problems with um, inferring emotionality of what you're saying. Again, with dichotic listening task, um, the left ear or right hemisphere has an advantage for pitch, melody, music identifi identification. Uh, T-scope experiments, as I uh, said previously, the left hemisphere, uh, left visual field, right hemisphere, is superior for depth perception, spatial localization, and identifying complex uh, patterns. It's also really important in mood, obviously, um, and it helps to uh, coordinate aspects of emotional expression and mood. It helps you to express and interpret emotions. Also with seizures, if you have right side seizures, then you'll have more mood disturbances. If you have left side seizures, you'll have more um, ideational disorders. Some more right hemisphere specializations. Um, you have neglect syndrome. So this is interesting. So again, the right side is spatial. 
So if you have a, a lesion on the right side, you will neglect the left side of space, even your own body. So these people won't wash the left side, they won't dress the left side. If you bring the left side into the right field of vision, then they'll say, that's not my hand. They completely, you're not uh, reacting to it at all. And then the right homologue of Wernicke's area, again, is really important for verbal information about tone and loudness and timing. Okay, there are a few networks. So I've talked about these heteromodal areas and that there are kind of special regions that are generally responsible for certain things. Parietal is important for spatial, prefrontal is important for executive functioning. Um, but we also know, especially here, that there is no one region that is an island. So networks are really important. Um, one of these networks is the dorsal parietofrontal network that is important for spatial orientation. So it has the frontal eye fills, the cingulate gyrus, and your parietal sulcus. So the parietal component is kind of important for uh, locations, the spatial information. So you transform the, where the target is to how you reach for it. Uh, the frontal component is important for choosing and sequencing, exploring and orienting. Um, the cingulate gyrus is important for effort and motivation. So this whole network together helps you to see a thing, know how to get to it, and then what I have to do is if I want to move this in order to get to this, and then just motivation to even do it in the first place. So that's what this whole network is doing. Um, if you have damage to this area, then all those things will not be uh, functioning. You had the limbic network, which is important for memory and emotion. The epicenters here are the hippocampal antirhinal complex and the amygdala. We talked about this, I believe, last week. It's important for memory and learning. Uh, the amygdala is important for drive and emotion. Um, damage to this region, of course, damage to memory, emotions, um, affiliative behaviors, so doing things so that it reinforces social bonds. In monkeys, this would be grooming and of course, autonomic responses. Uh, the Parasylvian network, as I talked before, this is the whole Broca's and Wernicke's region, um, also the arcuate basilicus that connects the two regions. If you had damage anywhere in either Broca's or Wernicke's or in the path in between, you'll have trouble with speech and language. And then we spent a lot of time today talking about the ventral occipital temporal network. Um, also, this is kind of the parietal region and this is about um, object recognition and face recognition. Um, usually the problem here is in the fusiform gyrus because it has a lot of vascular input. Uh, so if you have a stroke, then this region might be affected. Um, there's a prefrontal executive function, a prefrontal network that has executive function and comportment. Uh, the kind of the two epicenters here are prefrontal heteromodal, also orbital frontal down here is important for behavior. And then the prefrontal all the way back to uh, parietal is important for working memory and executive functioning. Okay, so that was a lot, um, but that is your um, associative regions and higher level functioning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.